0: We are gonna finish up part four today. So the first chapter is called How to Lose a Friend. Late spring. We are at the sixth grade camp out at Rock Lake. Our class has done a ropes course and zip line. We've linked arms and crawled one at a time through a hula hoop without breaking arms. We've led one another blindfolded through the twists and turns of the forest. Girls have run from simple spiders. Boys have tackled one another in the grass. One of our chaperones, Mr. Andrews, who is a sixth grade homeroom teacher, has shown everyone how to build a campfire, starting with sticks placed in the shape of a teepee. Soon, we'll cook hot dogs and smother them in ketchup, then roast marshmallows over the fire until the marshmallows burst into flames and turn black. On the bus ride here, I sat alone. You walked past my seat and plopped yourself next to Aubrey. If I turned around, I could see your back as you leaned across the aisle to gossip with Jenna. You and Molly are wearing matching barrettes at the front of your hair, clipped just so. Somehow, those barrettes managed to make you look older, not younger. You're both wearing lip gloss, and your half-zipped sweatshirts and jeans make you look a little like twins. The boys are running in and out of the woods, throwing sticks and small logs into the fire. The larger log sends sparks up into the air, which makes everyone cheer. Then Justin picks up a stone, lifts it over his head, and hurls it right into the center of the fire. The sparks scatter everywhere fast, and several girls jump back, screaming. Sixth graders, come on over, Mr. Andrews waves to us from beneath a tree a short distance away. He begins counting down. Ten, nine, eight. The boys dash over their arms and legs everywhere, tripping and knocking into one another as they go. The girls move more slowly. They walk in a pack, and they don't care that they're not over by Mr. Andrews by the time he finishes counting. I walk close behind those girls, close behind you, but I'm not part of your slow moving, boy watching group. I'm in a different category altogether. I am becoming an expert in watching other girls' backs. Ladies, Mr. Andrews says, Nice of you to join us. Then he turns to the group and asks, What do you hear? His legs are farther apart than his shoulders. His hair is so short he's almost bald. He looks like a soldier or a pit bull. Everyone is still. Then Justin Maloney makes a farting noise, and everyone laughs except Mr. Andrews. Aubrey leans over and whispers something in your ear. You giggle. I wish so badly that you would look at me. Mr. Andrews repeats his question. What do you hear? I close my eyes. I listen. After so many days of sitting alone, listening to the cafeteria noises, I'm good at hearing things. I hear the rustling of classmates, the urgent high-pitched flutter of cricket wings, the up-and-down melody of songbirds, the first hoo-hoo of an owl. In the distance from another campground, I hear somebody belting out the star-spangled banner. From a different campground, a thud-thud like a drumbeat from some faraway rock song. Those birds, there are so many out there calling. Some sound like whistles, and others sound like caw, caw, caws. Some are chattery and some are sing-songy. They're different sounds, different birds, but there's a rhythm to them. The crickets and owl, too, they all kind of fit. It's like music somehow, all those pitches, all that rhythm, weaving in and out. Then, with a start, I understand something. It is music. I'm certain. I mean, I just know that all these different species are playing together, calling around one another's noises. Each of them has picked a pitch, a pattern, and they're filling in one another's empty spaces. It's a concert, and I can hear it by listening just right. I open my eyes. I look right at Mr. Andrews. It's an orchestra, I say. The words come out a little breathless. He cocks his head. What? An orchestra, I repeat. Or, I don't know. Not exactly an orchestra, but like one, anyway. He just stares at me. All those noises, I continue. The birds or whatever. They're playing together. But even before the words are out, I see one of his eyebrows go up, and I know this isn't the answer he was looking for. It's the wrong answer. The very wrongest answer. And now that it's out, I can't take it back. I shrug as if to distance myself from my own words. I mean, that's kind of what it sounds like anyway. Huh, Mr. Andrews says, but in a way that suggests he isn't really thinking at all about what I just said, not even a little bit. And that is all he needs to say. As if he's given them permission, the kids laugh. All of them. You too. Mr. Andrews tells the class what we were supposed to have heard. While Susie here listens to Mozart in the trees, I want you to hear something else. He makes a rhythmic gesture with his hands, in time, with a thumping bass from the faraway rock song. Then Mr. Andrews explains that sounds at low frequencies travel farther than sounds at high frequencies, and that is why you can always hear the beat of a drum from a faraway parade sooner than you can hear the rest of the band. My cheeks burn. I wish I'd thought to point that out instead. Later, I walk around the campground for a while. Just me. I listen to the orchestra above my head until I hear a commotion down by the pond. Dylan and Kevin O'Connor are throwing something back and forth. I think it might be a stone or a ball, but it has limbs. It's a frog. They're hurling it back and forth at each other. Stop. I think that, although I don't speak. You stand near Dylan. You watch him. Your hip is sticking out and you do not take your eyes off him. Dylan must know you are there because he catches the frog and turns right to you. He wiggles the animal in your face a little bit. You squeal like you're frightened, but also as if you like what he's doing in some way. He grins and looks at the frog in his hand. He turns toward a tree. No, no, no. It's a birch tree, white bark. It's just a few feet away from him. Please. Please do not do what I think you're going to do. He lifts his arm. I suck in my breath. No. It is all happening in slow motion now. The way he pulls his arm back like a major league pitcher about to throw a fastball. The tree is right in front of him. There's a smile on his face. He winds his arm back. He is about to kill something for no reason whatsoever. The other kids scream and laugh at the same time. No one is stopping this. I look right at you then, right in your eyes. You can stop this. I feel almost certain of it. I say your name, Franny, but it comes out in a kind of choke. You cannot hear me, but you must sense something. You must feel me watching you. You look up right at me. I stare at you hard. I try to communicate everything I can. Dylan is doing this for you, I try to tell you with my eyes. Please don't let him do this. Please don't laugh. Please don't encourage him. His arm is back. It is back so far. Please, you are the girl who ran with me beneath the bats. The squeals are even louder now. I've seen you with Fluffernutter. I've seen you cry when people were cruel. He holds his arm there just for a moment. This is not you. I know you. I know you better than any of these people. And that is when you narrow your eyes ever so slightly, but it is enough. When you do that, I see something I've never seen before, a kind of deadness in your eyes. You turn away toward Dylan. At exactly that moment, he releases the frog. You laugh and clasp your hand to your mouth like everyone else. There is a half second where the frog flies through the air, ridiculously cartoonishly, and then there is a noise, a terrible noise. It is both a thud and a splat, both wet and dry. It is the worst noise I have ever heard. And then there's a chorus of ew and "oh, gross and disgusting, all mixed in with laughter. So much laughter. I turn away from them, from you, from all of you. I have to breathe deeply to keep myself from throwing up. I didn't know how to stop it. I don't know any of the right things. I know about things like bats and glowworms. I know that pee and sweat are sterile, and that before the universe existed, there was no color, no sound, no light, no air. But these things are of no use. I'm supposed to know other things, like how to clip a barrette to the front of my hair so it looks cute but not babyish, or how to walk in packs and how to squeal at campfire sparks, and how to stand near boys with my hip jutting out. I'm supposed to know the perfect thing to say when later you walk past me with Jenna and she sneers, an orchestra as if orchestra referred to a clump of maggots crawling over one another at the bottom of a trash can. You laugh and keep walking, and it takes me a moment to realize that you are laughing about me, about the answer I gave to Mr. Andrews. I'm supposed to know what to do later on that evening when I hear other kids whispering and giggling in the dark. I'm in my sleeping bag, and the giggles come close, really close, and then I feel someone hovering just above me, I feel something warm and wet on my cheek. Spit. Someone has spit on me. Spit is not like sweat. Not like urine. It is not clean. It is not remotely sterile. I am supposed to know how to do something other than lie there. Pretending to be asleep as my former best friend. I understand now. You are not my best friend. Not anymore. Scrambles away in the dark retreating in giggles as the warm saliva runs down my cheek toward my nose, tickling my skin as it goes. Taking over. The night before my science report, I couldn't turn my brain off. I saw jellyfish when I closed my eyes, jellyfish when I opened them again and stared out into the blackness. I got out of bed, turned on my light, and started pacing around the room, practicing what I was going to say. I was muttering the report out loud when my door opened. Zoo, mom asked. She wore a bathrobe and rubbed her eyes. What are you doing? I shrugged. It's 1.30 in the morning, zoo, she said. Go to sleep. But even when I lay down, I hovered the line between sleep and waking. In the morning, I was going to speak. In the morning, I was going to tell everyone what I understood. And when I was done, if it all went as I hoped, I wouldn't be alone in my understanding anymore. And if it didn't go as I'd hope, well, then Jamie really would be the only one left. How to not forget. The Rock Lake campout was days ago, but I cannot get that frog out of my head. I keep hearing it, the thud splat of flesh against tree. I remember its limbs flying outward as it sailed through the air like a comic strip image, but there was nothing funny about it. That frog had been helpless, completely, and your eyes looked right at me. The moment they saw me, they changed. You made a decision then, a decision not to care, a decision about whose side you were on now. And every time I think about that, I want to scream. Shoot me if I ever become like that, you said, long ago when you swore you'd never be like Aubrey. Send me a signal, you said, a secret message, make it big. I tried. I tried to call your name, and I choked on it. I tried to tell you with my eyes. You looked away. Thud. Splat. It is almost the last day of school. If I'm going to send you a message, I'm running out of time. Part four leaves us on a big cliffhanger there. What do we think this message is going to be? How do you think that Susie is going to send Franny a message? I wonder what she did. Let me know if you have any predictions.